once again to Core Ideas, a paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things lake sediments. And as usual, uh, we are your hosts, myself, Adam Jesiorski, and... And Josh Thienpont. Thanks for coming back again. All right. And uh, today we're rounding out what we've uh, sort of been referring to as our you know, intro series or fundamentals where we were Season one, baseline. whatever it is. Yep. Season one, something like that. Uh, baseline of vocabulary so that we can build on going forward. And today we're talking about environmental reconstructions. So we're going to deconstruct reconstructions, or we're going to try at least. <laughs> we're going to try. In audio form, complex multivariate statistics coming straight into your ear holes. Don't turn it off now, though, guys. We're, we'll do a good job. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into the whole concept of performing environmental reconstructions, you know, uh, I think a good place to start is why. Why would you want to do this? And I think that really um, stems from what we've been talking about, kind of alluding to throughout the last couple of episodes, but just getting at what is the question that you're trying to answer? Or in most cases, when you're, you know, beginning a paleolimnological analysis, there's a specific environmental problem that you're trying to get to the bottom of in some way, shape, or form. And the vast majority of the time, uh, for paleo people, these questions revolve around, essentially, how has the environment of a particular lake changed with respect to some variable over time? And this can vary massively. It can be like, has the lake acidified? Has the lake nutrient content in the lake gone up? Has the lake been contaminated with metals related to mining impacts? As I don't know. Yeah, just Josh. list them all off. Me, you can continue for every different study or some combination of them. It may not be one or the other. Um, there may be multiple things going on. And through all of that, it may be that you're going to be reconstructing it and interpreting how the lake has changed qualitatively, but it also may be that in some instances there'd be a value to being able to quantitatively, numerically reconstruct some component of the environment. And that's kind of what we're trying to get into today, how we might go about adding a numerical reconstruction to past sediment records, which is not a straightforward thing to do uh, as it may seem uh, at the face of it. Yeah. Um, These questions are rarely simple problems. Um, in large part because if they were simple, uh, oftentimes they would have already been done. Um, and the reason that they're not simple problems is because the necessary data rarely exists at all. And if it does exist, um, it's going to be patchy and not cover the time period of interest. Yeah, um, for and, sure. Yeah. And sometimes this is because, you know, it's a lake in relatively the middle of nowhere. No one was measuring it for you know, acid, metals, you name it. Nutrients, um, whatever it might be. There are so many lakes in the world. No one can, even if you wanted to be able to measure for every analyte, every chemical variable, every physical property, uh, in one lake, that would be a challenge to do. To Imagine doing it for a suite of lakes to encompass the entire variability in those gradients is absolutely impossible. Uh, and there are other challenges associated with the fact that for some of the variables we're interested in, uh, even identifying that they were of interest only happened after the changes had already occurred or begun to occur. Uh, and because of that, uh, it would have been impossible because no one was thinking to measure it, even if they could have. 
And then building on that even further is sometimes the means of performing the measurements of interest only came into existence after there was a problem. And so the most obvious example of this would be looking at lake acidification. So I think the concept of acid rain dates back to the uh, 1890s that it was recognized that the industrial emissions in, um, in England were causing uh, the rain to become more acidic. Um, but to actually measure those impacts, the idea of uh, uh, measuring pH or the concept of pH was only introduced in 1909 and didn't really reach its like modern kind of form where numbers would be comparable until the 1920s. Um, so that provides another hard cap on when the pH of a particular lake could have been measured. Yeah, it's like and 75 years after the onset of some of the industrial emissions that may have been resulting in it. So, so yeah. So if you want to know historically whether a uh, um, lake had acidified over time um, and it had been doing so since the 1850s um, due to nearby emission sources, um, there's absolutely no way that the data to answer that question um, could possibly exist. Or imagine going back and looking at a core from the like Paleo Americas, where the Inca may have been extracting metals and smelting them, and all those things. Like those hundreds of years ago, there's absolutely no chance to be able to reconstruct any of those types of environmental uh, variables. The techniques to extract the sediments or to measure the variables to access the sites completely foreign uh, to that time period so but we can still go back and say things quantitatively about the conditions in the local environment the broader uh, regional environment even the global environment based on some of the reconstructions that can be carried out on sediment records and then also one kind of tangential note to this is we talked a little about this um, when we talked about phosphorus in our chemical indicators episode and a also about cesium in our dating episode that depending on the chemical nature of the sediments some elements and molecules can be mobile within the sediment matrix so like if depending on the ph or the oxygen conditions um it can move up it up through the sediments from when they were originally deposited um so even if you have the means to measure them directly the direct measurements are not necessarily particularly useful. Um, and this kind of lends itself to the indirect approach, approaches of paleolimnology in general, um, where you're looking at indicators, taxa, or um, chemical properties um, to calibrate uh, changes in environmental variables through time using uh, surface sediment training sets. Yeah, exactly. And it gives you the ability to reconstruct a range of variables, whether they're in the water column, whether they're at the sediment water interface, whether they're uh, even in some cases in the catchment may, may be possible depending on the indicator. So there's a lot of uh, potential for really the things we've been talking about for a few of these episodes is tailoring your approach to the question that you're trying to answer uh, and getting a faithful representation of what that environmental condition may have looked like in the medium uh, that you're interested in. Okay, and so this is where we're going to get into the uh, meat of this episode. So we've got a rationale. Why would you want to build a calibration set or a transfer function? Because you want to measure something that wasn't measured, basically. So you're turning to lake sediments um, to, to reconstruct that variable. And this is typically done through what is referred to 
uh, either as a calibration set or a training set. And what is meant by these terms is basically you're going to look at a large set of lakes. Uh, the number varies, usually looking at like 40 to 50 lakes, but really depends on the study. I think, you know, there's some back and forth in literature of where the sweet spot is, because I think you can definitely have too big a, uh, a set in some cases. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and you may be limited on the other end, on the low end, by logistical constraints that are not ideal for the mathematics of it, but may just be all that are capable of doing that. But something, as Adam said, in the 40 to 70 kind of range is what you would find the bulk of the uh, the um, calibration sets to be based on in the literature. Though there are outliers for sure. Yeah. And so this set of like... 40 plus lakes um, would have been selected specifically to span a range of environmental conditions and limnological histories um, to cover what you're interested in. So if you're interested in acidification is an example I want to keep coming back to, you'd want to make sure that your um, calibration set contained a number of low pH lakes and high pH lakes so you could uh, reconstruct that variable through time. Covering the entire gradient that you're interested in. Uh, it's not going to be really useful if you have no really, really acidic lakes and you're trying to reconstruct acidic conditions because you just don't have the coverage of the modern set for that, the modern conditions for that environmental uh, variable. And the way that you're going to reconstruct that variable is basically making use of the uh, indicators preserved within the surface sediments um, as reflective of current conditions. And this works, and we mentioned this earlier, I think in the bioindicator uh, episode, even though the specific ecologies of many microscopic taxa are poorly understood. So for example, when I was talking about chronomids, I think I mentioned that uh, the relationship between the uh, chronomid larvae and the chronomid adults is not always particularly clear. Same thing with some uh, chrysophyte cysts. Um, in a calibration set kind of setting, that doesn't really matter. Um, you just want to know where these things are found and what they like. And that is basically building off the general idea that most of these taxa are going to have a unimodal uh, relationship with a particular environmental variable. So the easiest way to think of this is, um, say we're talking about temperature. If you saw a landscape dominated by polar bears versus a landscape dominated by camels, you'd have a good idea of which is the cold one and which is the hot one. Yep, for sure. And their autoecology or their biogeography determine where you find them in the modern landscape, in the current environment, or the surface sediments being a representation of that. And then you can say something about the conditions based on which taxa you find in that location because they are uh, they are found there. And how they're adapted, so how polar bears are adapted to cold conditions, doesn't really matter in this context. All we know is that is where they're found. They're found in cold regions. And it also, um, I guess, it, it, to continue this analogy, because we're talking about the uh, the one variable, just the condition of temperature, uh, the other variables may not, that could separate out, say, the difference between polar bears and seals or polar bears and uh, land species or whales, whatever it might be, are not important anymore. We're talking about just the single variable temperature in this case, or pH for our diatom example, that can be used to drive them. And there may be a potential to use those other variables later on for a second gradient 
but we're really interested in that one variable that can separate out the different species, camels, polar bears, whatever. Yeah. And then the other thing to keep in mind is in addition to the Optima is a tolerance. And again, using our large mammal uh, kind of example, or I guess not that large, but a polar bear, it's cold, um, but it, isn't particularly adaptable to a wide range of temperatures. It's a specialist, whereas something like a generalist would be like a rat that is found everywhere. It might not do well in very cold conditions, but it's found in a much wider range of temperature conditions than the polar bears would be. Yep. There are generalist species for all of those variables. And and the specialist can tell you something about, you know, the specific conditions can really narrow in on that uh, top that, that optimum. Uh, but the breadth of it is also valuable because it provides other data to to, to flush out that that uh, calibration. Because when you're looking at this, um, depending on your indicator taxa of choice, um, so again, following our pH example, uh, looking at diatoms, you're going to be looking at within your uh, calibration set, the surface samples, you're going to have hundreds of species. Amongst all of the different lakes, yeah, amongst in. 50 different lakes looking at all of the diatom taxa there will be hundreds of species uh, so there'll be a lot of overlap and some of those species will be the generalists and some will be the specialists and that is that bulk of the data the you know beautiful amount of information is what is really valuable here yeah and we're obviously uh not going to do a whole lot of math and audio form here today thank god um, but basically <laughs> and not or you know, not capable of doing so, uh, or inclined. Um, but uh, what would be happening with the calibration set is you want to build what is known as a transfer function to relate the species assemblages to the environmental variables that you measured. So at this point in the example, we wouldn't only be looking at pH, be looking at all all the um, variables that were measured in your cal calibration set. So we have two data sets, the species data and the environmental data. And then we do what is um, basically, not basically, what is referred to as uh, multivariate ordina ordination techniques. And what you're essentially doing is um, performing a regression on each ta taxa and variable simultaneously. Um, it's complicated math, but the whole point of doing it, you do it in one shot so you don't lose power due to repeated measurements. Um, but basically you want to try and characterize that assemblage based on the primary gradients that are present in the environmental variables that are driving the differences between the lakes. And when you have done this, and this has been done uh, through various software packages, I don't think anyone is going to be doing this by hand and has not in decades. It'd be impressive if you still could. Scale. Yeah. yeah. It'd be a good test. Um, yeah. <laughs> I would fail. A good. test I would fail I, so badly. <laughs> yeah. An excellent exam question, you know, on, on the blackboard. Can you whip up a quick transfer function, please? Um, but the way that these will typically be represented is what is known as a biplot. You'll basically have a scatter plot uh, showing, basically representing your uh, various species in uh, 2D space. Um, so basically the points in a scatter plot, but overlaid on that will be a bunch of vectors uh, spread, spread out from the origin. And these arrows are basically your environmental variables, and they're showing how the uh, uh, main environmental variables that popped out in the analysis uh, relate to one another and to this individual species. Yeah, and you can put them all on on one in a triplot as well uh, with 
different symbols. There's lots of ways to plot multivariate data. The actual plotting is not related to the analysis. You could never visualize the data in a plot. You could just take the values and then complete the transfer function analysis or generation part. Um, but one really useful thing is to have a look at what's going on in terms of the whole uh, data set, the three different components, the species, the environment. And then the only other thing is to say that the discussion of multivariate, so indirect and direct ordination that we're talking about here is not unique to transfer function. It is something that's done without the actual construction of the transfer function part. Uh, and we can talk about that in another episode. I think we, we've we discussed uh, having an episode on computing and, and some of those other sort of statistical methods. But it is a critical step in generating the transfer function, hence why we're talking a little bit about it right now. Yeah, like the purpose of the ordination is just to make sure, make sure or identify what the principal environmental variables um, uh, governing your calibration set are. Because um, this is where you go, okay, I really want to make a uh, transfer function of diatoms to pH, but pH actually didn't turn out to be a particular important variable. Yeah, for sure. It's phosphorus that's that the most set. important thing in this case. Yeah. Um, so this it's really part of the evaluation step although you know no one's going into this blind so the calibration set would have been tailored to make sure that you're getting at ph if you're interested in ph but it's kind of in terms of following the conceptual process along this would be one one step so you've got your calibration set you're performing your ordination to make sure that you're measuring or able to capture the variable that you're actually interested in and then the next step would be building the actual transfer function and once you, the important variables in your data set have been identified, um, and base, and then you are evaluating your models so that you are relating uh, the, the species responses to that environment variable in terms of their relative abundances. So you have a decrease in taxon X would be shown as a increase in this variable depending on its relationship to to that variable. Yep, exactly that they. They overlap and they align with what we know about the changes in the species and the changes in the environment. So that when in your not when you're no longer looking at your modern data set, your surface sediment calibration data, and you go to apply that to another location, which is the ultimate goal, you know that a change in this taxon will, or the suite of taxon, but if we're just thinking about one species as an example, will result or will be. Uh, in allow you to infer the change in the variable that you're interested in. And so there are a variety of ways that you'd evaluate your model, which we're not really going to get into right now. And, you know, if you do want to look into it, you'd be talking, looking at things like jackknifing versus bootstrapping um, and examining, you know, what your uh, coefficient of determination or your R squared value is for your model. How much error there is in your prediction variables. So, so all the techniques, the, the details are, are beyond what we're trying to talk about. But some goal of taking your model and seeing how good it does at estimating either a subset of your current data set that you have, removing some of the variables from your calibration and then seeing what's going on in predicting the other uh, sites or looking at a, another set of made-up data uh, in order to evaluate how well it does in a real-world scenario, but a real-world that's controlled in the computing kind of space. And once you evaluate your model, have a sense that it's doing what you want it to do and you're happy with it, the end goal of this is going to be applying the model to other data sets. And so in our example, 
we have a calibration set with a wide pH range, then instead of looking at surface sediments anymore, you'd be looking at diatom assemblages from a particular sediment core of a lake that you want to know the pH history of. You would then pump into your transfer function your um, assemblage data from your sediment core going further down in depth or further back in time, and then you get a inferred pH value for each interval that you look at. And so the idea being then, okay, this lake currently has a pH of, I don't know, four. Has it always had a pH of four? And then you go back through time and go, oh no, you know, in the early 1900s, before the smelter went up, you know, three meters away, um, <laughs> it was a circumneutral lake. And you'd be able to track that change, both something that extreme would pop out in the actual assemblage data, but also you'd have your inference of pH through time going back uh, with sediment depth. Yeah, exactly. And if it's three meters away, they're probably bricks from the smelter when they were building it in there. So <laughs> you'll find those too. <laughs> Leave me alone. Okay. <laughs> But no, exactly. The idea is that you then now have this powerful tool, this powerful transfer function to transfer what we know about the modern environment to the paleo record going down core that can be applied really broadly to other lakes so long as they have similar taxa. You can't, uh, you know, if there are no diatoms preserved in the sediment core, you can't use a diatom transfer function to figure out what the pH is. That's not going to work. And as so long as the environmental conditions fall within the range or pretty close to within the range of the original surface uh, calibration data, the original lakes, what we said at the beginning, if the pH is four, but you only had in your transfer function or your training set pH of lakes that are between six and eight, you know, it's a really... Uh, alkaline kind of data set, it's not going to be very good at predicting those four kind of lakes because it's there's no uh, there's no comparable conditions. And yeah, and then going the comparable conditions can be taken a little bit further. Um, sometimes uh, uh, these will be referred like transfer functions will be referred to as a space for time approach. Um, and when you're going back in time, uh, one thing to keep in mind. Uh, sometimes is yes, the you know the pH may be comparable or within your calibration set, there may be high pH lakes or low pH lakes, depending on which way it changed. But um, there may not be good analogs of the species assemblage for those conditions. And I'm kind of struggling a bit to kind of coalesce this into a certain idea. But you know, just because your pH gradient had a lot of low pH lakes. That doesn't necessarily mean the assemblages between all pH, low pH lakes are the same. So a low pH lake in the Arctic versus the tropics um, would have drastically different assemblages because of all the other environmental variables that are at play. And so when you go back and you try and pump your um, uh, down core data into your transfer function, what you may find is, you know, yes, I'm able to re reconstruct a number, but my uh, uh, modern analog analysis is saying, Oh, yes, we got the number, but you know, there's a whole bunch of lakes through one particular time, a uh, whole bunch of intervals through one particular time period that doesn't have a particularly good analog anywhere within the calibration set. Yeah, that can happen when there's taxa that are really unique, where there's one species that dominates the assemblage in this this system that you are looking at, yet it wasn't. Uh, 
either found or wasn't very common in the training set, in the calibration set. And because of that, there's just no information, if it's dominant in your sediment record at this one period, there's no information in the training set that allows it to accurately predict uh, or infer what those conditions would be like, because it's just not representative of the data from the original training set, at least in the abundance that uh, that you're finding it in. And that would be one of these no or poor analog techniques that Adam's talking about. So having covered why you would want to build a uh, transfer function and on a very loose level, uh, how you do so to the point that all of our listeners are now experts in this topic. Um, a key thing to keep in mind is, you know, with the development of uh, software over the years, it is relatively easy to build a model given after you've done you all the, the, data. the counting of that species, which may not be easy, but is straightforward at least. But mathematically, no, building the model is easy. Like the, yeah, like this, the legwork has been done on a so- software level. Um, we're well beyond, you know, the early days of computing um, where you would set your model up in some DOS software and leave it <laughs> running over the weekend and hope you've done everything correctly. Yeah, you put your floppies in in the right back. order. If you, yeah, um, we're well beyond that. And if you've got your data sets present and you can build a model in a um, uh, within a stats package within a couple of seconds. For the computing, yeah, absolutely. On, on the power of your laptop, yeah. Um, so even though it is easy to quote-unquote uh, build a model, um it does become progressively more difficult to uh, build a good model and in terms of uh, performing well. Um, so that means a lot of care would have to go into the selection of your calibration uh, lakes to cover the ranges that you are, um, that you're interested in, um, and to uh, um, have chosen a uh, indicator that would respond to the, the, the gradient that you're most interested in. Um, it's then even more difficult to build a good model that is useful to the point that somebody else will be interested in doing it to answer other questions beyond the initial one that caused you to build the model. And then even if someone else is interested in using your model, um, it's even more difficult to build a good, useful model that someone else will actually use. And there's a variety of reasons for this. Beyond the initial question, like, you know, if it answered the initial question, uh, it was successful, but there's a fair number of models that um, have gone well beyond that and are referred to very, very regularly. Mm-hmm. And and uh, for some of those, it may just be the time they were developed for a lot of other people being interested in the same question. It may not be that others were, uh, you know, inappropriate for that technique. It's just maybe the the timing and what was available at that at that exact moment as others were doing that research. So there could be a lot of things that go into that component. Um, but one of the things about these kind of models is that some of them do get uh, applied very broadly beyond the initial analysis that the original author authors uh, had in mind for that that. Uh, technique and actually um before before we really get into that uh i wanted to touch just on using someone else's model and like one of the first steps that may um that may um kind of present a block in some cases 
in using a model that you were potentially interested in is harmonizing the data. So when you're dealing with hundreds of species of whatever your tax is, well, I guess hundreds of diatoms, if you're dealing with invertebrates, you're dealing with like dozens instead on a much smaller scale. But when you're just using a model on your own, uh, you can call individual taxa whatever you want as long as you're consistent. Um, yeah, for sure. It's unknown species one through three hundred and forty-one. As long as you're consistent that they're always the same taxon, uh, that's perfectly fine. I mean, uh, yeah. might not get through the review process, but uh, yeah. but the uh, the model can still work in that case. Um, but then you know, will make it very hard to relate to somebody else's counts or apply your own counts. So in some cases, and especially I'm thinking of diatoms. I'm sure there's other examples as well. Uh, because the taxonomy shifts over time, if your model is, uh, you know, 10, 15 years old, uh, it's not a case of anything was identified wrong. It's just those species uh, names have changed as uh, stuff has been reshuffled around by the real diatom taxonomists. Um, and it may have happened multiple times. So you have to do a bit of a, you know, delving through changes in history of the naming of taxa to apply an older model to your own data where you're you're doing everything right. Someone that made a model 15 years ago did everything right. There's a lot of intermediate steps to get your data into the form that it can be input into their model. Yeah, it's not insurmountable, but you may be finding yourself uh, typing a lot of different searches into algae base before you're ready to actually apply anything, just in order to get the data into a framework that is an apples-to-apples comparison of the species' names even. Uh, And... Beyond that, not even just the names, it's also making sure that the identifications are accurate because you know it's challenging to identify certain groups uh, and what you call something may not be the case. So you may be looking at the initial plates, the pictures, um, light micro, micrograph uh, photos from the initial uh, transfer function, which is often incorporated into the publications uh, or in available uh, in order to make sure that everything is, uh, everything is lined up and I mean that literally uh, correctly for the actual run of the model, and then you can move forward with that. And the general like philosophical divide between lumpers and splitters. Yeah, oh, oh for sure. The, and and if you're applying it all yourself, um, I mean, I would I would think of myself as a bit of a lumper generally, um, more than a splitter. And if you have no idea what we're talking about, those would be people who, instead of um, perhaps finding every last taxon's name, saying that they're they're similar, uh, these groups look very similar and might just add them together. And uh, I think that's something maybe for an eventual episode where we kind of delve into taxonomy a little bit. But it can be a bit of a that's a good idea. There. We could do a uh, we could do well. We don't have that many followers on on Twitter, but we could do a poll. Are you a lumper or a splitter? <laughs> Um, and, be honest. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> if it's going to be honest, it'd be a lot more lumpers and splitters out there. And, and uh, that's the idea in that for, you know, uh, qualitative reconstructions that may be perfectly acceptable and, and it's not scientifically invalid to, to do that, especially when, you know, a lot of times we're making our interpretations based on the really abundant taxa, but for a transfer function, it's often the really rare taxa that are driving a lot of the, uh, the really nuanced, uh, value of the model. Uh, and because of that, you can't be lumping taxa in that case, you have to, you know, do the same type of taxonomy that the person who developed the model did. And that's the whole point of this little, uh, little aside we've been on here. Yeah. And um, 
and basically planning in advance because, you know, for any new graduate students out there, if you're thinking of applying a model, instead of just going through your accounts and going, I'll apply this model down the road, you don't want to be a year in and go, oh my goodness, you know. What have I done? There's what so much more of a done? splitter than I have. You know, it's like what no one advance what you will need to know in order to apply the model that you're thinking of at an early, the earlier you do it, you kind of look into it, the better in terms of knowing what you'll have to do as opposed to repeating steps after the fact. Critical. Absolutely critical. Yeah. And then just following the idea of data, one kind of other thing I wanted to just like touch on uh, for a second is just the general idea of open data. And this is becoming a bit more of a buzzword uh, just within science in general, open access and all this, but data sets in particular, especially model data sets can be really, really valuable. And you might not realize, like we said, lots of models are out there. You may not realize, you know, how much use your model may have down in the future. Um, if you leave the means for somebody else to apply it easily. And this can be as simple as like appendices in your thesis. Um, and these can be gold mines um, down the line long after the fact that, you know, the thesis published done, person's moved on decades. Um, but just, uh, um, you know, don't let your data die. Yeah, you may have no idea who, oh, you, there's no way any of us can know who may be interested in our work uh, in the future, moving forward to be able to take and do more stuff with it. There's, uh, you put a lot of time into collecting those data and analyzing those data and developing that technique. And uh, it may as well be available. And I think this is something we've gotten a lot better at uh, in the, the fairly recent past. And uh, hopefully it continues as a trend because it really, I mean, it's great. It's no problem to go and take that out of a thesis, but if they're freely available um, on some sort of repository or linked to the paper itself is is so valuable for so many different people. Yeah, and I'm guessing in, in some way in the digital world, it's a lot easier to track someone down, you know, 20 years into the future than I guess it would, it would have been, you know, you know, when you're dealing with a thesis that's like 30, 40 years old, potentially. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, and that's, those are the ones I was kind of referring to as gold mines. But um, yeah, just, uh, just if, you know, you put all that time making your data, uh, creating your data, um, you know, allow it to live on in some way. And, and I guess that's not a bad link to what we had intended to talk a little bit about the lifespan of some of these things. So yeah, you may be able to find a thesis from 40 years ago and reinterpret or regenerate that model. Um, but there's a, a question that, and I don't think there's an answer to it, it probably depends, uh, related to what is the lifespan of one of these models or how broadly can they be applied in our modern multi-stressor rapidly changing world uh, compared to, I don't want to say the simpler world in which they were created, but a different time period that they were created. Yeah, I don't think it's like simpler. Um, so multiple stressor um, kind of kicking on. So the main one that I that comes to mind when you think about, you know, can a calibration set like age itself out or like become less relevant over time would be one ones that I've spent a lot or a problem I've spent a decent amount of time thinking about is uh, oxygen reconstructions um, in the deep waters of lakes 
largely thinking in terms of like cold water fish habitat. But basically the, the transfer function being used is going to be tied to um, the low auction conditions um, right before fall turnover. Um, but then with climate warming, that date is kind of moving further and further into the fall. So if you have a calibration set that, um, you know, is 20 years old or 15 years old or something like that, um, the it's being developed to capture the auction minima um, that may now be occurring a week, two weeks later than it was when it was developed. And does that matter? Maybe, maybe not. But basically the conditions that are um, changing um, are independent of the uh, what is actually being measured in terms of the auction condition. But a lot of the, you know, secondary variables of like a like the implications of a longer summer may have some long-term impacts on the calibration set and the taxa that are found there. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a week or two would be significant in time, but that's you know between two and five percent of the whole year for the year. So. And, well, then, and that's only the the whole year, not the open water period. Yeah, so that, that could that. be really that could be quite significant, or or maybe not. But uh, something certainly to be considered and to be taken into account as you think about whether this is uh, really something that is going to give you accurate data. Because in the end, the model is always going to give you a value. It's going to give you some prediction, unless there's absolutely no analog in there. Uh, but is that meaningful? And then. Like the knock-on effect of that is it's hard, hard to develop a calibration set. But then if you develop a new calibration set that you know captures, in this example, the auction minima, if it has moved on two weeks into the year um, and you throw it out there and no one really notices and everyone keeps using the 20-year-old one because that is the one that has been used dozens, if not, you know, a hundred times, let's say, yeah. and that everyone's able to compare their numbers um, directly between the models, you know, then it's like, you know, was that wasted effort on a on some level? Or well, I don't think it's a question Not necessarily wasted, of wasted, but, but it's like but how comparable now are your results? Is your paper or your interpretation to the body of the literature that's based on a totally different transfer function? Uh, in that sense, maybe it was wasted, not for your effort or the no, quality no, no, no. of the data, but for the comparison. But if the idea, yeah, if the idea was to go, okay, we need to modernize the, the data set used, and it doesn't catch on for some reason. Uh, well, that's because people are on Google Scholar and they're looking at the article with the number highest number of sites. Yeah, no, this just falls into like you know unanswerable questions that just kind of kick around in the back of your head a little bit, and uh, um, and should. We yeah. should give you pause as to when you apply yeah. any technique. Yeah, and and I think uh, this is something that's come up fairly often in our lab in terms of something to think about when discussing, like John Small likes to say, it's like you've got to know your data and not just, like, yes, depending on your math skills and maybe some element of black boxiness to it all of, like, data in, data out. But you really want to have a good handle on what exactly you're reconstructing and what that means to be able to think of things like, okay, what has the last 20 years, um, like how, how will that have impacted what I am actually reconstructing? And this whole idea of like, you know, impact and recovery, is it recovering 
to the way it was, or is it recovering to a third state? Is common in all all kinds of uh, environmental aspects because just you know a warming climate is overlaying everything. So if you're talking about recovery in terms of pH, if you're talking about recovery in terms of um, nutrient conditions, whatever, that it's recovering to a state where things are noticeably warmer and winter is shorter and summer is longer and and the water is different and yeah, yeah there's all sorts of stuff going on. And your reconstruction is based on a well-established uh, calibration set. That, that, there are implications there. And I'm not saying it's not valid, but it's just something to think about. Yeah, or if the what was dri- you are assuming that the driver of that uh, species group's um, uh, assemblage is the same as it was in the past, and that may not be the case. And it may not be that it's not at any point in the year, but in at some period, climate is now the dominant for or um, stratification or thermal stability is the driving force, or maybe salinity has changed in addition as we. You know, salinize lakes all over the place that wasn't as important before. Now, while the pH may have returned to the environmental, to the value that it was in the pre-industrial, the assemblage is now different because of the fact that a new environmental variable is driving a lot of the assemblage uh, composition. And so you either may misinterpret the pH because those species were in the data set, but counted for different things, but now they're not responding as much to pH. They're responding to something else. And it's funny. I just realized we've gone through this whole episode and we've talked in very abstract terms. We've not really given a, like kind of like a short list of typical things that are reconstructed in paleo. Well, would it be short? I'm not sure. I no, guess. But there's like, in my mind, again, this is our podcast and we have our big three, let's say. But um, in terms of bioindicators... And almost you could get rid of one. The clodosphere transfer functions are challenging for many reasons. Yeah, I don't really know of any widely used used one at all. But when I think of like transfer functions, the big ones, I would say, is diatom-inferred pH, diatom-inferred total phosphorus. Then personally, I don't... Diatom-inferred salinity occasionally, yeah. Yeah. Less than the other two by far, but it's out there. it's, It's not a big one. But I personally have used chronomid inferred uh, uh, hypolimnetic oxygen uh, values. Um, there, there are, and there are more uh, less common ones for sure. Uh, Chrysophyte inferred uh, pH obviously is another really important one. Um, but yeah, squarely what I wanted to get here and just like kind of throwing the short list out is that, as you've said a whole bunch of times, you want to tailor your um, uh, indicator to the question. And you can have, I don't know if the word is false positives or stuff, but like when I was doing my PhD work on calcium decline, there was a uh, diatom-inferred calcium model I came across, which was, well, I think it's kind of interesting. And they, But I think it was done as an aside in the paper. It was not like the real focus of the paper. But then, you, you know, you start delving a little bit into it and it's like, oh, but why, why would diatoms care? What the calcium concentration in the water is, and not really using it. And really, I think no. what it was is really a diatom inferred pH model that had just been like used in lakes that were very closely, where the two were very closely correlated. Yeah, exactly. It, when you were looking at that triplot, calcium may have been just a slightly longer arrow or an equally long arrow that you could, they found that it would reconstruct it, even though there was no biological uh, mechanism for them to be drivers. 
um, in the same way that diatoms are used to infer organic carbon concentrate, like DOC in lakes. It's not because um, they have a specific requirement, although there is the light component, so maybe there is that there. Uh, but it's often strongly related to other variables, and and because of that, it doesn't have to. You know, the best ones have a strong biological requirement because they're going to be much more tightly linked to that variable's uh, gradient. Uh, but they can be created beyond that, and they may be applicable uh, depending on what you're trying to do with them. Yeah, but in my case, I was interested in lakes where potentially calcium was going down, where pH right. may not have been changing, and in that case that particular model wasn't sure you really decoupled the two things that were linked together and and after that the model even though again you you could have applied it and it would have shown uh, a value but it probably would have also inferred changes in the ph and luckily you knew what at least some of the ph uh, history in those sites were and knew that that wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have jived there so again anyway, just i don't know just some things to think about, uh, and it's a really complex topic, um, but pretty interesting and can provide you a whole bunch of rabbit holes uh, to dive down depending on where your actual interests lie, whether they're more mathematical or very applied to For specific sure. topics. Uh, I've, so- I've never actually applied, uh, I mean, uh, except as a student in uh, grad courses, applied any of these techniques, but it's something you read about and you, you think about the, you know, you may never have actually taken your data set and applied it with a model uh, but you see the results from them all the time. So having an understanding of the the bare bones of uh, what's going on there is really useful, even if it's not something you're in the near future planning on and uh, trying yourself. Because even uh, if you never use it directly, a lot of the, you know, species X is a really good nutrient indicator, or species Y is really fond of acidic conditions. Um, all this is going to come from calibration sets where that kind yeah. of stuff was uh, identified. Yeah, I think that is a, a not a bad not a bad summary uh, in the time that we tend to put into these uh, episodes, and that's it, Adam. That wraps up season one. The first, not to say that we won't be. In fact, we may record one sooner than next week, uh, even though it may not come out um, for the beginning of season two, where we'll start to think about some other ideas and, and go a little bit uh, off the methodological. Uh, framework that we've been using for the first few episodes. Not that there won't be any of that, but we'll be we'll broaden it out a little bit. I think there'll be a decent amount, and I, I think it's just more a case of, you know, we've covered all these terms, and if transfer functions come back up, we're not going to really go into any depth like we did today on them. It'll just be a transfer function for use for X, Y, and Z, and this is how it applies to the topic we're talking about today. And we just want to have a reference to go back to. Yeah, it's like the four or five topics that we we've covered in the last month or so, and uh, we hope we hope you've enjoyed it. It's kind of uh, kind of been fun and and going back to basics in some ways and hitting some stuff I've not looked at in a very long time. You can always catch us in the usual manners. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, maybe a lot of people are working from home uh, these days, given the modern environment we find ourselves in. So everyone stay safe out there and uh, send us a message on Twitter. And what, what is the, the Twitter uh, handle again? It is at Core Ideas Paleo, P-A-L-E-O, on Twitter. Um, we have our uh, email address. Um, there's nothing in the mailbag this week, but Core Ideas Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com if you want to throw us something uh, a little bit longer than we'll fit in a, uh, a single tweet. Um, and as always, uh, our website uh, is a hosts uh, all our previous episodes and 
uh, it's an archive and there's some show notes to accompany each one that both have some external links as well to some of the things that we're talking about. And we're just going to continue building on that going forward. But uh, yeah, and that is found at core ideas, all one word, dot ajezorski, A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I dot C-A. And until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, this has been Core Ideas, and uh, we'll be back again uh, relatively soon. Thanks. See you later.